Hi, public health people. Welcome to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Domicella Grace Calhoun, MPH, and this week we will be covering the CDC's April 30th, 2021 Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Let's get started. In Article 1, Powell and colleagues looked at adolescents with autism versus the general population and found that adolescents with autism were 90% more likely to have physical difficulties and additional mental health and other conditions like Down syndrome, epilepsy, Tourette syndrome, etc. The adolescents with autism were more likely to receive mental health services than those without autism but adolescents with autism were also three times more likely to have an unmet medical or mental health service need. In both groups, only a fraction of adolescents received healthcare transition guidance from their physicians. Healthcare transition is essentially the planned movement of adolescents from child-centered to adult-oriented healthcare systems, and it involves talking and strategizing with your doctors, making sure that health insurance matters are sorted, etc. The takeaway here is that adolescents with autism have specific health concerns related to both mental health and other conditions like Down syndrome, epilepsy, Tourette's, etc. And they have these conditions along with differences in healthcare service needs. Also, while transition guidance for all adolescents can help ensure a smooth transition from pediatrics to adult healthcare, it might be especially important to focus public health efforts on boosting and promoting transition guidance for adolescents with autism. Article 2, Ticks. What you should know first is that the incidence of tick-borne diseases in the United States is increasing. From 2004 to 2016, reported cases of tick-borne diseases more than doubled, from over 22,000 to over 48,000 cases. Okay, so ticks are also responsible for approximately 95% of all domestically acquired vector-borne diseases, with Lyme disease accounting for over 80% of those domestically acquired vector-borne disease cases. After a tick bite, people might seek care at an emergency department so that healthcare practitioners can remove the tick and administer post-exposure prophylaxis which has been shown to effectively prevent Lyme disease when taken within 72 hours of a high-risk bite. In this study, Marks and colleagues looked at 149,000 emergency department visits for tick bites from January of 2017 to December of 2019, and they found that in the U.S., on average, there were 49 tick bite visits for every 100,000 overall emergency department visits. The Northeastern United States actually had the highest incidence at 110 tick bite visits for every 100,000 overall emergency department visits. The time period of spring and early summer had the largest peak in tick bite visits, and there was also another smaller peak in visits during the fall. And this does align with the seasonality of a rampant human biting tick known as the black-legged tick. So compared with other age groups, pediatric patients under 10 years old accounted for the highest proportion of emergency departments for tick bites. The takeaway here is that emergency department data is a great way to monitor the trends in tick bites because it's really the only data we have on tick bites since health departments don't collect that data. 
by using emergency department data, known as syndromic surveillance data, to monitor tick bite trends, public health professionals can better provide timely and actionable messaging about wearing insect repellent outdoors, performing tick checks, and avoiding tick habitats during these times of increased bite risk. Next article, we're talking about post-vaccination COVID infections in skilled nursing facility residents and staff members. So first of all, early studies suggest that COVID-19 vaccines protect against severe illness. However, post-vaccination COVID infections, which are known as breakthrough infections, can occur because, of course, COVID-19 vaccines do not offer 100% protection against COVID. When we're talking about the occurrence of breakthrough COVID infections and how impactful vaccination has been in decreasing COVID transmission in congregate settings, the data is pretty limited. Skilled nursing facilities are congregate settings, and in these settings, both staff and residents have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and were prioritized in vaccination efforts. So this study talked about how since vaccination clinics began in December, out of 627 people with COVID infection across 75 skilled nursing facilities, there were 22 COVID infections that were identified among staff and residents who were two weeks out from their second dose. So in summary, out of over 600 people who had COVID in all of these Chicago skilled nursing facilities, 22 of them were what we would consider fully vaccinated. And of these 22 people with these breakthrough infections where they still got COVID, 14 of them, so about two-thirds, were asymptomatic. Two of them resulted in hospitalization, and in one case, the person actually died of COVID. And the implication here is that although there were few observed COVID infections in fully vaccinated people, the COVID cases that were observed demonstrate the need for skilled nursing facilities to continue following infection prevention and control practices. Also, public health efforts should emphasize promoting high vaccination coverage among skilled nursing facility residents and staff members, especially staff members. As we've seen in other studies, skilled nursing facility staff members are one of the most vaccine hesitant groups out of all healthcare workers. On this same topic, a study by Kavanaugh and colleagues assessed an outbreak of COVID in the lineage was R1, and this COVID outbreak was at a skilled nursing facility in Kentucky. The outbreak happened in March, and at the time, R1 was a newly introduced variant to Kentucky. The researchers found that in this skilled nursing facility, unvaccinated residents and unvaccinated healthcare personnel had three times and four times the risk, respectively, of COVID infection as compared to their vaccinated counterparts. COVID-19 vaccines were 86.5% protective against symptomatic illness in residents and 87% protective amongst healthcare personnel. So a difference of 0.5% in terms of protectiveness. The takeaway here is that just like in the previous article, Vaccination efforts towards skilled nursing facilities are essential for reducing the risk of symptomatic COVID, and so are infection prevention and control practices. 
And that wraps up this week's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in any or all of the articles in the April 30th Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, you can find all of them on the CDC's website. Otherwise, be sure to follow the podcast Instagram at MMWRecap and have a lovely week.